Hello, and welcome to the Lasso the Moon podcast. My name is Brett Redshaw, and I am so happy you're joining us today. We are about to get into a conversation about a movie that the three of us really enjoyed, After Sun. However, we just need to do a little bit of business before we get to the topic at hand. So, there is a content warning for this episode because it deals with strong themes of generational trauma. So, we're talking like parent-child relationships and abuse that goes along with them. And also strong themes regarding self-harm. So, if any of those things are triggering to you, the viewer, we would just ask you to consider potentially skipping this episode. And then, of course, we're going to have plenty more episodes for you soon, so you get that Last of the Moon fix that I know you got. If you would like to continue with this episode, it is a good one. This is a movie that we really, really enjoyed, so we're going to be passionately talking about it for a little while here, and I hope that you will join along. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the Last of the Moon podcast. I'm Bryce McCracken. I am Brett Redshaw. I am Wyatt Van Dyke. And today we will be talking about the film After Sun. But before we even start to talk about the film, I need to address the fact that once again, we are not on video, and it's for a plethora of reasons. The primary reason being, Mr. Wyatt here does not even want to record this podcast that we're doing for him. Okay, first off, I don't want to be accused of such things. I don't want to, I didn't want to record this podcast tonight. You see, I may sound slightly different because I am a tad bit under the weather but uh, not under the weather enough to really want to play ping pong this evening ping pong is great for my health good for my mental well-being podcasting also good this movie for my mental well-being who's to say if it was as good but uh i don't want to be blamed for all of this uh we still are here we're still podcasting and I'm still excited to talk about this movie. For Absolutely. context, for context, it's 10.45 p.m. on a Sunday night. We all have work tomorrow. And uh, I just had a heartbreaking uh, L watching the Chiefs win again over the Bengals in the AFC championship game. I, I don't even like the Bengals. or the, But I really, I hate the Chiefs. I'm so sick of them winning. So that's why I'm in a bad mood. And the second reason was I just got back from a trip and... My room is a mess, and that's a little bit embarrassing, so we're not on video tonight. One more thing before we get into the bulk of this episode. I got an interesting email today from someone named Carlos. Carlos said, hello, how's it going? Hope all is well. I have some cool information that might interest you. Your podcast, Lasso the Moon, has good performance in Apple podcast rankings over the last 30 days. Our podcast, boys, is podcast number 64 in taiwan in the category film reviews we're huge in taiwan baby we're making the move uh and even more surprising position 73 in the category film reviews in the u.s um i take that to mean there probably are not that many film review podcasts on apple podcasts no but i'll take top 100 but top 100 it feels pretty good even if we do only average like 15 viewers or listeners at the moment Still, Bryce is breaking still a this good news. Feeling. Bryce is telling us about this now for the first time. We were not aware of this. So, uh, yeah, if there's anything to get me and White in the mood to pod, it's probably that. 
he might be making it up for all I know. He just wanted to set the No, I've, I've got the email right here in front of me. I don't know how legitimate podstatus.com is, but I did some quick research, and it it appears to be just some website that aggregates Apple podcast statistics. Fact-checking. The email says, Hello, Bryce. I'm a Nigerian prince, and I need your assistance. And much like how I spent $14,000 on this podcast already, I've sent far more to Nigerian princes all around the world. But I just want to help out. He's just a sweet guy, after all. So, uh, if you ever need a socially engineer, get Wyatt. You can pretend to be Paul Mescal and say, "Wyatt, I'm so heartbroken over Phoebe Bridgers." What? What a great segue, Brett. Thank you for that. Because I want to start the d- discussion around this movie by just allowing Wyatt a few minutes to just talk about his love for Paul Mescal. Um, before he does that, though, I will say what this movie actually is. If you're not familiar. So After Sun is a 2022 film directed by Charlotte Wells. Sophie, who is our our main character of sorts, uh, she's a a young girl. She's reflecting on a shared vacation that she took with her father uh, as a child. We enjoyed this movie quite a lot, I believe, so I'm excited to get into the discussion for it. So I'll take my time uh, to chat about that which I love the most. The congressman from Wisconsin is recognized. Uh, so if there's anything that is quickly established about me uh, throughout the first few episodes of this podcast is that when it comes to production companies, I am a slave at the throne of A24's movies like no other. Uh, I believe they comprised half of my top 10 list for 2022, including one of them being God's Creatures. As long as Paul's represented, we'll all be happy. The first time I saw any form of media, he was uh, working in was the Savior Complex music video on Phoebe Bridger's second album, Punisher, uh, that is phenomenal and worth checking out. Uh, of course, he and Phoebe did uh, start a little romance on Twitter. Um, Phoebe, of course, my number one artist four years running on my Spotify wrapped. Uh, and then from there, they got engaged slash potentially maybe not engaged. It's a whole saga that I'm pretending like they're still together for my heart and well-being. Are they? Who's to say? Maybe Bo Burnham's involved. Maybe Matt Healy of the 1975. Honestly, I'm okay with all three of them dating Phoebe Bridgers. I love all three of those boys. Outside of myself, I would prefer Paul, but I don't know. With them separated, potentially, who knows what this opens up for me uh, with Phoebe. But um, Hopefully a long and happy marriage. That's what I'm looking for. But uh, from normal people to God's creatures to after sun... I cannot get enough of both the things Paul Mescal is in and his performances themselves. Uh, Normal People, probably my second or potentially first favorite TV show of all time. Um, And then you've got a movie I threw in my top 10 for 2022. And one of my favorite movies I've seen in a while in After Sun that I don't know how I would rank it year-wise. Because it got a limited release uh, in 2022, but I first got the chance to see it in the year of our Lord 2023. But Paul Mescal is great. He's going to continue to be great. He's big, he's Irish, he's lovable. Uh, I see myself in that because I too am big Irish and lovable. He's just way more attractive and better at acting. But Two things, Wyatt, two things. Um, firstly, you can't be both Irish and Dutch. I am. That is quite literally how my no, family I, I under- down. No, I understand how white people work, <laughs> but... To make both your personality. I feel like you can only have one nationality-related personality. I stake hard to my Dutch claim. I think that mostly relates to 
uh, success in international soccer above all else, and the fact that Amsterdam's probably a little bit prettier than Dublin. Shouldn't it be based in your genetics? Um, who's to say? You know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I do have Netherlands tattooed on my arm. I don't have Ireland, but maybe a Paul Mescal face tat might like find its way upon me. And then we'll have to reprioritize. See what I'm thinking. Well, as a McCracken, I'm gonna I'm gonna claim the Irish name in this in this podcast. The second point, this you now mul- mentioned multiple times that Paul is a big man. He's like five ten. Yeah, but he's like he's he's like a rectangle. He's broad. Like he's not he's not small in any sense of the word either. Uh, he, I mean, you see it right away in the movie. He's he's a pretty dense fella. That's fair. You uh, see some some both flattering and unflattering images of Paul shirtless in this film. But um, even some bare ass. I do think Paul's best actor nom was deserved, uh, not just for showing ass, but also because he had an outstanding performance in this movie. And I'm excited to get into it. Uh, so yeah, this movie is exceptionally performed, mainly by Paul. I mean, he's he's on screen a significant portion of the film, but also by Frankie Corio, who plays Paul's daughter, Sophie. And I guess it's worth noting Paul's daughter or Paul's, Paul's name in this movie is Callum. Um, and the movie just tracks their relationship on this week of vacation. And I've not seen Frankie Corio in anything. I'm, I'm looking at her letterbox and it looks like this is pretty much her first ever movie. And it was, as far as my point of view, some pretty exceptional child acting. She's asked to, display a lot of range in terms of the emotions that she needs to be expressing. A lot of them are far more complex than I think children are often asked to give in films. And I left this movie very excited to see what what she'll do next. I did think the chemistry between the two of them uh, was pretty phenomenal. Frankie Corio and Paul Mescal spent time uh, off set in the production of this movie, just hanging out at the resort it was filmed at uh, in Turkey to like develop that natural chemistry, that uh, relationship that they were supposed to supposed to have in the film. And I think it translates well. Absolutely. It does seem pretty natural. Uh, it's a unique age dynamic at one point. Uh, Paul's character is confused for Sophie's brother. Um, and I think that their portrayal of it does like not replicate a traditional father-daughter relationship there's definitely some nuance there and i think the age dynamic is part of it paul's character is 31 in the movie uh and sophie is probably like nine it actually takes place pretty much on his 31st birthday he turns 32 over the course of it 31 she is he's 31 at the beginning no i think he's 30 at the beginning and then turns 31 it's not super important he's he's young feliz cumpleaños column (laughs) sophie's character is also uh she's 11 Good to know. Um, they're a very engaging dynamic duo on screen. It's easy for child actors when they get thrown into the mix of having to work with adults that the chemistry just kind of falls flat and their character will show up on screen and you as the audience member is like, ah, not again. We have to watch this. And that was um, never even a, a creeping thought in my head watching the movie. They were really enjoyable to watch from beginning to end. And th- this movie absolutely would not have worked if the two of them did not have so much chemistry No, together. I mean, it's almost entirely them. It's There are a few side characters, but I, only one of them, I think, really has a name. The other ones appear for short periods of time. So, yeah, they're all over the movie. Yeah, and it, it's absolutely crucial. If, if you're going into this movie 
and you're just watching this father and daughter on screen going through the emotional beats that they go through in this story, and it's not believable, their relationship. It doesn't matter how well the rest of the movie, which, in parentheses, is done very well. It doesn't matter how well those things are done, because this relationship is ultimately at the center of it, and it wouldn't work otherwise. I do also think the casting decision uh, of Frankie Corio is made more interesting by the fact that in finding a character for Sophie, uh, as we'll get into further post-spoiler warning, uh, director Charlotte Wells is casting her adolescent self. Um, and so she did all these inter- or interviews and auditions uh, trying to find someone that essentially replicates her and her childhood experiences, um, which I find fascinating. As I was watching this movie, I one thing that I wrote down was just this movie is so tender, which can apply both to chicken chicken, and loving relationships that one might have with their child. There are so many really peaceful moments of just the two of them together, and maybe they're not necessarily doing anything, but there's a look that they share or an act of physical touch, and it's all so gentle and so careful, and you can just really feel the love that these two characters feel for each other, even though, as we'll get into when we get into spoilers, their relationship is not completely clean of of issue. Even though this movie has a lot of really painful and sad moments, it's those really tender and soft moments that I found myself thinking of a lot as I was thinking back on this movie the whole movie just feels very idyllic and peaceful and loving, which I I don't know if you guys, it's entirely possible that you could have left feeling something completely different, but that's how I felt. No, I do feel that way. Um, This movie certainly is emotional in a variety of ways. I do think one of my bigger takeaways from the film uh, will be Sophie's line talking about how she finds comfort in sharing the same son uh, as her father and knowing that even if they are not together, they are under the same sky. I found that part of the movie to be adorable and phenomenally well-written. Um, it is going to be something that I think about for a while, and in the process of watching the movie both the first time uh, and the second was very touched by. Yeah, it's a sensitive word to put on a parent and child relationship if you're immature. But it's it's accurate to say that there is such a thing as like, an intimacy between a parent and a child mm-hmm. because it is um, it is a relationship that is so, in some cases, and in this case that is what we see, it's a relationship that is so interpersonal um, because you're, you're connected through blood and you care about this person in a way that, you know, is completely unique to them. And what I'll say, because we're, we're we're leaving into spoiler territory, I'm sure, in a moment. So to, to tell people who may be listening, questioning whether they're going to see this movie or not, if there's any kind of um, parental trauma or if your parental relationships are incredibly important to you and who you are or they're just an interesting concept to you, this movie is going to be very intriguing to you. I would highly suggest it. I'd highly suggest it for just about anybody because... Uh, We'll get into this, but I think it's pretty clear. Like, we all really liked it. 
Um, so I'd suggest it, but that's that's kind of what you're getting into. That's that's what the vibe is. Yeah, Brett, you you mentioned how hard this movie would hit if you're a parent. You sort of mentioned that adjacent. Um, I have heard some people say that did not enjoy this movie as much as we did, that maybe maybe I can't relate to this because I'm not a parent, or maybe I can't relate to this because I'm not a girl dad. Um, no, you just weren't loved. <laughs> nobody nobody showed that care for you as a kid. It's, it's entirely possible that, that that is the case, but, I mean, the three of us are not parents, and neither are we daughters that had a father, so... Um, I do have a daughter. She's uh, runs around on four legs. She uh, likes to bat around balls on the floor. That's a good point. She's a weird girl. We're not talking about Paige the cat. <laughs> Brett just has like this really odd girl that hangs around us. Uh, we don't know where she came from. We're hoping she learns how to walk soon. Um, but I still was able to find things to relate to in this story. Um, Paul Mescal's character is, of course, about a decade older than I am, but Throughout the story, I was just thinking, wow, I can really relate to this because I can see how if my life took a turn like it did when his character was my age, like he he would have had Sophie when he was my age. And so I was in many points thinking what my life would be like if this happened to me and how how difficult that would be and how every journey that he takes both in his own life and in his relationship with his daughter, how believable that is. So we have a lot to talk about in terms of spoilers. So if you have not seen after sun yet, it's streaming on Amazon prime. Uh, it is only available for rent right now, but it will be available at some point down the line, but it's just a few bucks and this movie is excellent. So if you'd like to join in this conversation, highly recommend spending the few bucks to get a chance to watch this movie with us. All right. Uh, so to get into the bulk of this conversation here, I want to start before we talk about anything. I've got a bone to pick with you, Brett. Oh shit. You actually ruined this movie experience for me. How so? Are you aware of this? No. You came in and started talking to me during one scene and it was in fact the worst scene for me to not be (laughs) paying attention to in the entire movie. Um, So if our listeners have seen the movie at this point, throughout the movie, you see these dancing sequences where Callum is dancing with this woman. They're separated at some club, and you're trying to figure out who this is. And about 60% of the way through the movie, there's a scene where we see young Sophie as an adult now, uh, so old Sophie, And this was the scene that Brett came and talked to me through. So I completely missed that that was Sophie as an older woman. Oh, that's tough. And so I spent the entire movie trying to figure out who this person was. I went the entire time thinking maybe this is like the story of how Callum had Sophie at such a young age. Like he's at a club and he's dancing and he meets this hot girl and then he has a baby. So I actually had to rewatch a lot of crucial scenes after the fact to figure out what the hell any of that meant. But it ended up not ruining my experience. I would like to throw the idea out there that 
I was on my way out to a party and I just walked into the living room, fitted the fuck up. And Bryce couldn't help but talk to me because I was such a 10 out of 10 dime standing right there in his presence. It's worth noting that Brett was indeed fitted the fuck up. That was velvet shirt night, wasn't it? It was velvet shirt night. I I can't argue with this. (laughs) It looked really good. I mean, it was worth being distracted for. We went back. We watched that moment again. But could we experience the velvet shirt again? No, we could not. Well, it is sitting in my closet right now. I could hypothetically go grab it at any time. But that ruins my point. Um, it, it would ruin the experience as well if I just had it out on a on a Monday night. Um, was this the scene where Sophie, she wakes up with a, a, a woman? Yes. And then her, her feet go down and it's on the, the special magic rug? The rug, yes. Yeah. Um, that um, would make completely a missed that. I was also wondering the entire time what this rug was doing in this movie because Callum seems weirdly obsessed with it. And I now have a take on what it represents. But yeah, I was very confused the first time. And it wouldn't have even been abundantly clear to me that that was Sophie if I was not watching with subtitles. And when she said something, the subtitle said Sophie. And then what she said. Um, Well, does the girl not the girl that she's in bed with not say, are you okay, Sophie or something like that? Isn't, I believe that happens, but either way, it's like not made abundantly clear until then. And if you miss a word here and there, that's entirely possible. Yeah. I, I probably sound stupid saying it now, but when I watched it for the first time, that was what I noticed immediately. Was like, oh, if there was any any amount of ambiguity where I was supposed to guess who this was, the subtitle just <laughs> ruined it, it, spoiled it. Yeah, yeah. But I guess <laughs> if they say it two seconds later, no biggie. And if Brett missed a word, uh, much like Bryce had part of the movie spoiled for him by Brett. I probably spoiled part of the movie for Brett in his watching experience uh, as I fell asleep on the couch next to him. Separate couches, not on the couch next to him. Um, (laughs) You were still holding hands. And uh, proceeded to pass out in the midst of a cold, so I was just snoring through half the movie. (laughs) So if Brett missed like a word or two, that's kind of on me. This man insisted on us watching it together so that he could rewatch and try to... Uh, connect some dots and then he <laughs> fell asleep immediately this man probably watched 20 minutes of the film on on second watch yeah but you know watch what i needed to see the beginning and the end the middle i had seen once before so despite us having some unfortunate viewing circumstances i think all three of us still really enjoyed this movie which really speaks to how effective it is um and one of the things that makes it so effective and we talked a bit before the spoiler warning was how good these characters are and that's where I want to start our discussion so of course there's a lot of chemistry between the two but I want to start specifically by talking about Sophie she of course acts as sort of the point of view of the story we already talked about that but what worked about her character for you guys besides her her really good performance Uh, I think her maturity as an 11 year old uh, benefits in the story Uh, if she was a character that's portrayed to be shy and like reserved, I don't think this message would get across as well, but I think her intelligence and maturity for her age lent to some conversations between her and Colm that really pushed the story in interesting directions further, uh, dug into the relationship between, uh, her mom and Colm. He has a relationship with both her and her mother still. Yeah. It's interesting to see how they interact differently from a normal father-daughter perspective just on the basis of uh, how Sophie is as a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the movie's casted extremely well, and uh, it's not just because we're big 
Paul Mescal fans around here. Um, I can see myself in the portrayal of the character through uh, Paul Mescal, even though I have never had a child before. I can also see myself through the portrayal of Sophie because she so expertly and subtly acts all throughout the film and just does a really magnificent job. So the actor work that is done so well just lends itself to making really endearing and compelling characters that all mesh with each other very well. And And we were all kids at one point, like just trying to figure things out. So to some extent, you can certainly put yourself in those shoes. Yeah, definitely. Why you talked a bit about Sophie's maturity, and I think that goes in tandem with her intelligence. We see a lot of times throughout this movie that she's able to see under the surface a lot of things that are going on. Um, One of the first things that I noticed was they're on this vacation that in theory should be pretty expensive, but we can tell pretty quickly as a viewer that... uh, (laughs) They're clearly not super wealthy. They're struggling for money. They're staying at a shitty motel and then going every day and hanging out at a resort that they don't belong to. Um, Sophie's jealous of this other girl that has like an all-inclusive wristband. Um, And she even brings up to her dad at one point, why are you pretending? I think he offers to get her voice lessons and she's like, Essentially, like, don't do that shit. Like, don't don't lie to me and pretend like, don't pretend like this is something that you can even afford, even if you wanted to give it to me. And I also think she really can tell, even if she doesn't have the the emotional maturity to understand what her father's going through, I think she can tell that something's wrong. And I can kind of feel her in the screenplay, like, trying to reach him and just maybe not being successful, which ultimately might be sort of the the sense of longing that this movie left me with. I mean, I think that's made at no point clearer than the karaoke scene mm-hmm. um, in which Sophie goes up to saying, expecting, as it's mentioned, like it seems like it's a tradition of some sort that her and her father uh, sang karaoke together. And it's one of the scenes in which you can clearly tell anxiety uh, and depression are really taking their hold on Colm. And she goes up herself. uh, And you can see just through the span of her singing a song, like her recognition, uh, despite continuing to sing, that something's wrong and something is is off about her father. And it's just a level of perceptiveness that you usually wouldn't see in the average 11-year-old, I'd say. And it just makes the movie so much more interesting. Yeah, really bad rendition of... Losing my religion. I mean, just terrible performance from this 11-year-old. Truly, truly horrendous. Completely off off pitch. You know, no breath control at all. You know, she mumbles the words all the way through. It's uh, pretty pretty unforgivable from that kid. uh, (laughs) I I do think, though, as horrible as Sophie's performance is, if you stop and think about some of the lyrics in that song, Losing My Religion, I think they apply really well to what she's experiencing with her father. And there's another instance right before that scene. I guess it is in the same scene where an old man is singing a song. I don't even know what song it was, but uh, I felt like those lyrics were pretty applicable too. Um, The decision to choose uh, Losing My Religion is of no, uh, 
it's not like a no consequences choice. That's the song Charlotte Wells remembers, director Charlotte Wells, uh, remembers singing with her dad in this exact instance uh, that this film was based on. Uh, she was told in production to like expect to not be able to afford the licensing for that song and to forego that for other less popular options, but it was such a massive focal point of her childhood and her memories uh, that led to this movie that it was a necessary inclusion, and I think Bryce is right. The lyrics are applicable to the situation, and it is one of, I think, two, we'll get into the other one later on, uh, phenomenal instances of music and song choice uh, in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very much a turning point in the in the movie. It, I had that written down as well. She goes, she sings, <laughs> I'm Simon Cowell hitting the red X on America's <laughs> Got Talent. It's just, it, it, can't be, it can't happen. I'm over it. The red X is from... America's Got Talent. There's a red X on America's Simon Got Cowell Talent. is not from America's Got Talent, is he? Yeah, yeah he's yeah, on he it. Is. I was... This dude Is did he not, not have American an, Idol. He was on American Idol, Britain's Got Talent, and America's Got Talent. This man God, did not get around. Can do anything. <laughs> well, he well he can judge. <laughs> so it's like one. He can thing. do one thing, <laughs> but across put together one direction. Yeah. I mean, that man has given us so much. Point being, after the bad song performance, she goes talks to her dad. He's like, "We could get you singing lessons." And I was thinking back to actually a, a similar experience that I had had in my own childhood where I showed some interest in singing and somebody suggested lessons. And me, I was like, cross my arms. Oh, what What do you mean I need singing lessons? I'm great at singing. I, I could do this, etc. And I thought that that was going to be what she, I thought that was going to be the way that she reacted. But again, she's incredibly mature. She sees through the subtext of the situation and and says something really profound being, you know, don't offer me something that you can't actually give. Um, like Bryce said, they're on this pretty luxurious vacation. Meanwhile, Callum, her father, is like picking cigarettes up off of the ground and smoking <laughs> the bud that's left. And they're they're stealing food. Like <laughs> yeah, the first scene that we don't really realize that he's kind of a deadbeat. Um, it doesn't. He's not portrayed that way until they dine and dash off of uh, the dining area, and you're like, oh my god, this is not. This is not what I expected, but um, that that's the dynamic of the relationship. I also think before we move fully on from the karaoke scene, uh, is that not the first scene in the movie in which Colm's like, anxiety and depression appears in front of Sophie? I feel like the movie does a great job of separating them. Like there, You see two versions of Paul's character uh, dependent on whether he's with Sophie or without. Um, and that, that's and, very intentional on his part. Absolutely. And then I think... It's at that point that you see that it has become all too much uh, and is like the major tonal shift in the movie. Yeah, I don't know if it's that specific instance, but it's definitely, like Brett said, in that scene where the the movie takes a real shift. And I think she can really tell that something's wrong with her dad. And I think that's a good segue to get into who I think is, even though the movie's told through Sophie's perspective, the more important character in this story Um because ultimately she chose to make this film about her father. And so it really explores what he's going through, but specifically through her lens. So it it's made pretty apparent to the audience that he's struggling and it takes some time for you to figure out what exactly he's struggling with. You can tell he's not super well, but 
as the story unravels, you can you can tell that he's deeply, deeply depressed. Yeah, we get a pretty uh, <laughs> pretty gruesome naked crying scene. <laughs> yes, so I I had a, a a take for that scene. It I mean, firstly, it was it was really hard to watch um, just seeing this man sobbing, and you you don't even know specifically what for. But he's he's hunched over on the side of his bed and he's naked and you just see his back and you never actually even see his face in that scene. And I almost interpreted that as if this movie is Sophie's recollection of this trip with her father, that was never something that she saw. She likely pieced it together that he was struggling after the fact and is imagining this scene where he's just breaking down and and crying but she never saw that because he hid it from her and so the director does not give us the opportunity as the audience even to see what she never saw either which i thought was interesting like you see the pain under the surface and that's really as close as you get other than him maybe losing his temper with sophie to him really showing like true pain it's a really good performance in terms of showcasing anxiety and depression in more subtle ways. Uh, Paul, in his performance, never it's never like outwardly mentioned that like, I mean, on a few occasions you see that he like Bryce is saying he sobs, but throughout the movie, the majority of the instances in which you're aware that something is off, something is wrong, is these like little bits of acting, whether it be one line here or there. He mentions not uh, expecting to make it to forty things like that, where it's just these like slight nods that I feel like could be missed through like the first 30 minutes of the movie before you realize the summation of them that something is is going on. Yeah. But I think that it's the subtlety of that performance that makes it so strong and so like real feeling. I mean, it's not like you're watching this person in every move and you know something is clearly wrong from the bat. Uh, the more you get to know the person, the more you see that there's there's something under the surface and that is very human about uh, Colm's character and very, like, non not non-cinematic, but it just seems like he comes across as a real person you'd run into on the street uh, with everyday struggles more than most movies' um, characters that portray similar issues, at least to me. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but one thing that I thought a lot about through the movie is we're seeing a spectrum of emotions from Callum there have been many times that I've been on like similar sunny vacations that I get so sad when I'm not even particularly sad about anything that I just get like very overwhelmed. (laughs) And then it'll be like, let me just go off and have a a quick cry and then be back and be like, yo, let's play beer pong. (laughs) You know, I think looking at it more closely, we can say there are uh, a range of feelings that you could have in a happy location from a broader perspective anxiety and depression is much more complicated than happy or sad it's a it's a spectrum of emotions and it's something that we see through Callum's character all through the movie I have not personally experienced that but I have seen you experience it (laughs) Uh, we took a beach vacation a few years ago and uh, we were all a little bit inebriated and Next thing I know, someone goes, hey, where's Brett? 
Uh, and we all started calling him and he wasn't picking up his phone. He was not in the house anywhere. We were like running around the neighborhood trying to find this man. And he came back like an hour and a half, two hours later and was like, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> we're like, where the hell were you? And he, was just, he was like, I just went for a walk. Sometimes you just got to take a, a nightlife walk on the beach. Um, but I can't, I, I can't, we ex- thought this man died. I can't speak for Bryce and his levels of drinking. I'm not going to lie to you. I was hammered and I wandered off by myself. I, I checked my, um, my location, like my stats afterwards. And I had walked like four miles. Oh my God. They say the recipe for success is alcohol and open bodies of water. So I'm glad that <laughs> Brett got as close to combining those two as possible. It's you know? actually amazing that I made it back alive because I could have gotten just lost so easy. Wyatt, you had been talking about like the subtlety of his his pain and how the movie sort of unravels that. And I think it does a really cool job of of doing that. Like with the smoking, for instance, like you mentioned, we see him smoking outside in the first scene. We don't even know at that point that this is a thing that he's hiding from his daughter. It's not until later where she sees somebody smoking hookah at the resort and he tells her, hey, don't ever smoke. And she makes it clear. Not only has she gotten this lecture many times, but she seems to think that her father doesn't smoke anymore. Um, So that's really unique. But then there are also some like really subtle, at least in my opinion, ways that the movie hints at the dark turn that the movie eventually takes where Callum is just inches from death at a few moments. At at one point, there's literally just like a three-second shot where he walks into a street and is almost hit by a bus. And you, you don't even really notice it at first until you start to put a few of these things together. Like on, on its own, that's just a, a thing that happens. But then you get this other moment where he's standing precariously on the corner of his balcony, just like not even like just absorbing the sunlight, but like he's standing so dangerously, like one slip and he would die. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie does this really well where he, essentially abandoned Sophie and goes to swim naked in the ocean by himself in the pitch black. And the camera just holds. It doesn't move at all. It just shows the darkness of the ocean and him disappearing into it. And that's very dangerous, of course, but it also just shows like this man is entering a void that we don't know if he'll ever come out of. I did fully think he died in that scene, which was jarring as it happened. I remember exclaiming something out loud along the lines of what is this man doing but i think paul gives a masterclass performance in acting through body language at various points throughout this movie uh there's that smoking scene it mentioned it's like right off the bat in the movie uh and in it his shoulders are hunched and he's leaning forward and all of those instances in which uh he is showing off uh his sadder side uh there's a scene in the bathroom where he's cutting uh, his cast off his arm and he's leaned forwards and hunched over. He does a really good job of displaying what he's feeling through that as well. Uh, You can pick up on his emotions through just looking at him uh, in instances, as opposed to really needing like auditory uh, clues through lines. But um, I'm just like in awe of that performance. I thought it was near flawless. Let's talk about that cast removal scene. Cause I, I had a question watching that, that I want to 
see if you guys have an answer for. I was thinking as someone who has broken their arm before, you get that the the thing professionally removed and that's a thing that is scheduled. It's made pretty clear his arm is now fine. I was wondering why he didn't just have a doctor remove his cast at home. And I almost wonder if this vacation was completely impromptu. Um, like maybe he, he realized this is, this is the end for him and he's taking Sophie on this trip and saying goodbye when he can. I don't know if that's how you guys interpreted it, but it, it, it felt like potentially this trip might've been rushed because he should have had that cast removed at home by a doctor. I picked it up as something of like him making a sacrifice so he could do something else. Like I thought the scene following that is the scuba diving instance. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering in my head, I was thinking, is that like something they wouldn't have been able to do with his cast or something like that? In theory, you can't get it wet. Yes. It also shows him swimming with it. So I was thinking that maybe he was making a sacrifice uh, in order to give Sophie a good time. Mm -hmm. That was my takeaway from it. Um, I do think that scene in specific is probably one of, if not my favorite actual shots of the movie. Yes. There's so much going on there. Uh, you see both of the characters, but they're split there. It's in their hotel room. They're split between a wall, which is in its own, an interesting device. It's a clear physical representation of the mental barrier between the two of them. Yeah. There's, there's literally a line between the two of them. And so you see both of them and Sophie is lit in the natural sunlight of the room. She's sitting on the hotel bed. Uh, it's bright, it's colorful. And then on the right side of the screen is Paul. Uh, and he's in this darkly lit bathroom. Uh, it's blue. It's like the lights aren't on and it is a phenomenal, phenomenal visual representation of the divide between the two of them. And I think it wins my award for best shot of the movie. And what the two of them are sort of feeling like mm-hmm. she's excited to be on this vacation and he's wrestling with so much pain that he can't show her. And that's why that wall is up. Like he's constantly trying to hide this from her. So another Paul in the bathroom scene that I liked very much where it shows his, his pain. There's one scene, I believe it's, You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it's after they scuba dive. But Sophie says something to the extent of, do you ever feel like you're so tired that your bones don't work? And he doesn't even respond to that. Instead, it shows him from behind brushing his teeth in the mirror and he spits all over the mirror. And I was shocked at first. And I think I even made a joke watching it with Wyatt. I was like, oh, he's canceled for that. Like, that. why Why would you ever <laughs> do that? And then the more that I thought about it after the movie ended, I, I was like, why, why would he do that? Like, he's not a piece of shit that doesn't care about the state of his room. The director obviously chose to put this in here for a reason. And, I mean, he's not just spitting on the mirror. He's spitting on his reflection of himself and it's directly after his daughter says something to the extent of feeling so just unbearably tired and she doesn't even realize the weight of the words that she's saying like in her head she's referring to something physical but he hears those words and it just exemplifies everything that he's feeling where he's just tired of life and he's down on everything that he is and everything that he's gone through and he hates himself. And so 
that literally shows itself in him actually spitting at his own reflection. He's spitting on himself. And on on second watch, that really hit hard. Whereas on first watch, I was just like shocked and thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, it's so out of character for him that it makes it exceptionally surprising to the viewer. Because he's normally so controlled. Yeah, you wouldn't see that happening. My initial thought, and I really, I did not read into it as much as you did, but I think those thoughts were all valid. (laughs) My initial thought was that that was just peak intrusive thought. <laughs> oh, and that's what if just, I spit all over the mirror? That's right just now. a little boy in me wondering what it would look like if I just pretended to be a whale and just <laughs> all over. <laughs> that's, that is as much as I took out of that. Uh, I'm glad you still enjoyed that scene. <laughs> For my own reasons, yes. So I'd also like to talk about the rug, because we see this rug quite a lot. Again, I was very confused at first what, why this rug was getting so much screen time because there are multiple scenes with it. Um, and of course, I was mostly just confused because I didn't see it again in the important scene where I should have seen it again uh, because I was distracted by Brett's lovely shirt. But um, I was curious how, how you guys interpreted that and if you have a take on that. I am still waffling on what the rug means uh, especially uh, it's one of the few scenes where it's also um callum by himself uh when he goes back to purchase it after deciding against it uh when he's there with sophie um and then it makes the reappearance in the the sequence in which sophie's older but i don't know what it means i there's a line where they talk about like the rugs being super intricate and telling stories so there's got to be something there. I mean, I'm certain that in some interview with the director, it will be made clear. Maybe on third watch. Yeah. We'll just keep watching, you know. But I think it is a great indicator of, like, without saying Callum is gone, the fact that the rug has made the the trip to future Sophie's home, uh, that he is gone, and that she takes what she remembers from a good trip of his with her. And it's like a lasting memory of her father in a time in which he is no longer there. Maybe it's like a physical manifestation of the good times that they had together mm-hmm. uh, in their last that story woven into the the threads of yeah. this rug. That's the, that's the, the last little bit she remembers of her dad. Um, that's my best guess at interpreting that. But it's something that I don't think there's a, a clear answer on yet. I have a couple of thoughts about it. First and foremost. If they're my thoughts, I'll beat you up. (laughs) Uh, Well, you should have said them first, but here I am. (laughs) The first thing that jumped out to me about the rug is that it's expensive. Beating incoming. Oh, yeah. So the rug is 45 million Turkish lira, which translates to 850 euros. Um why are we translating to euros? This is a <laughs> podcast recorded in Pittsburgh, brother. Oh, uh, well. And also, he asks for it converted into pounds. Oh, ex- I'm sorry. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> uh, so that's actually about 7 million Vietnamese bots. <laughs> I'm not up on my, on my communist liberal currencies. Um, okay, so it's 850 pounds. It's it's a significant amount of money for somebody who's stealing food. Wyatt? I need to clarify that the bot is Taiwanese and not Vietnamese. Oh my God. <laughs> God, you're so racist. 
point being it's an expensive rug okay it's an expensive yes. rug yes. callum clearly does not have a lot of money but he goes and he he buys the rug with some level of intentionality for some reason he just is you know maybe he knows that money is less important to him now because he's not going to be around for much longer um he wants a very nice souvenir for Sophie to have after he's gone, something along those lines. But I, I think that what Wyatt was saying was very accurate, and it sounded like you were agreeing as well, that um, they mentioned that all these intricate rugs that are on display in a couple of cinematic shots throughout the movie, they, they have stories within them. They uh, have meanings more than just decorative. So, you know, the rug is a representation of Callum or at least um, the the memory of him. Yeah, I, th- I, I actually think it might be, I think the three of us were potentially able, able to solve this riddle. I think it might be a combination of the two of those things, sort of in a, a physical, motivational sense. I think through the rug, we can see Callum always intended on taking his life, which I, I don't know if we even have said that yet. No. Uh, he kills himself at the end of the movie. At least that's what we believe is implied. Um, I, th- I think Callum can tell he's not going to be around much longer, like you said. And it's really common in people. One of the, the warning signs of someone that's going to take their own life is giving away their money, giving away their possessions, saying goodbyes, things like that. And I think it's really likely that... Like you said, Brett, he sees this as something that he can give to her. Maybe it's entirely possible he has 850 pounds in his bank account. Yeah. And he doesn't want to just give his 11-year-old daughter $850, but he wants to give her something that she can remember him by, like Wyatt was saying, like the story of their lives are potentially woven into the fabric of this rug. And she now holds this with her forever. Like we see when she steps off the bed as an adult that she still has this rug with her. Um, I did look it up uh, just now. And the line specifically that the carpet salesman uh, drops in talking about it is that each carpet tells a story. Mm. So I think we have effectively in cohort with each other, Solved the riddle. God, we're so good at this. This rug is the story of the two of them. It is the story of the lasting moments with your dad uh, and the good memories you share with him. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm, at some point, I'm sure that Charlotte Wells is just going to be like, oh, yeah, it was just a pretty rug. I wanted to get it in the scene. <laughs> it had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> uh, I, I often wonder that <laughs> being an AP literature student, and being forced to analyze these highly complex motifs and things in movies. I, I, I often wondered, did this guy really mean any of this? Yeah. Like, like in a tale of two cities, does, does red really represent blood or did this guy just really like the color red? Like representing for the literature community of this podcast. Yes. Those things are meant and I stand by it, and it's so much fun to describe it. Yes, I was, I was just oh, about I to love say. It. Uh, ultimately, that's all. That's where I get a lot of my joy in consuming media from. I like to read into those things, and so whether they mean it or not, I'm going to pretend like they do because I enjoy it more. Well, it is kind of a puzzle. It's something that teases your brain a little bit. I was thinking about this in my overall 
perspective on the movie that Afterson reminds me of why I like art house cinema so much. And it's not to, you know, <laughs> it's not to try to be pretentious about liking some kind of higher form of art or anything like that. But it it's a lot more engaging to me when yeah. I can finish a, a film and not have every single answer to every single question when it's open to interpretation. And the, the movie just does that so well. The questions aren't who's going to be in the next movie. The questions are, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to the person that is giving it to me? And I feel like that's a much more valuable conversation to have. And ultimately, like why we have this podcast because we want to explore those things yeah and if you have some level of ambiguity to your your plot to certain points it opens up your interpretation to allow you to apply it to your own life so much more and that's one reason why i in this movie and in so many other similar movies i i end up feeling as I'm sure you guys do as well, some form of emotional nostalgic connection. This movie did that to me as well, so well. This movie is, uh, if you remove at least for me, like the darker parts, uh, can remind me of of a childhood vacation, of things like that. There are certainly moments in which, uh, especially towards the beginning of this movie, when it's still uh, set at points in a happier tone, of those those good moments. And I think that's what Charlotte Wells is going for. This is not... an overall sad story. This is the last time she saw her father. And at that age, it was a lovely experience. It was, well, at least for the most part, it is vacation with your family. And as, uh, we've all been fortunate to do, uh, we've had those experiences growing up. And those are things that you look back on 15, 20 years down the line. I assume I will look back on some of my vacations for the rest of my life. And that's what we're going for in this movie. It's, going to generate some positive nostalgia it's going to generate some good old-fashioned melancholy and it does a good job of it all yeah the pain is interwoven throughout the story even though if you look at the things being portrayed in her memory which makes up the vast majority of the movie most of them are positive like you're saying Wyatt and if we kind of jump to the end of the movie and where it leaves us it's it's clear that Sophie did have a great time on this trip, even though it wasn't perfect. They weren't both happy the entire time. It's clear when she says goodbye, she's still goofing around. She still cares and loves her father. And it's only after the fact, looking back and realizing what a loss he is, that that pain really comes through and you get it throughout the story or throughout the movie just because it's of the way it's told and it's interwoven throughout the the movie. But if it were told sequentially, it would just be this story of a father and a daughter on a really idyllic vacation. They're messing around. They're in, they're intruding on a nicer resort. Like it could almost be like a a comedy or maybe just a a really simple drama. Like I, I really appreciate how Charlotte Wells chose to tell this story going non-linearly um there's a motif of the the camera that they're using throughout the story and the opening shot is sophie recording her dad standing in a doorway and we see that it establishes some things but then we actually see it taking place later on in my favorite shot of the movie the camera just holds on 
this old fashioned television and you can see in the background what the camera is actually capturing. And the scene goes on for like three minutes without cutting. And it, it's really powerful how through their reflection, you can sort of feel the separation that is growing at this point. At least that's how I felt watching it. Yeah, it is a very interesting shot. And we learn a lot about Callum and his character through that scene. Cinematography aside, more from a writer's perspective, we learn that he has a lot of generational trauma about him because he had a abusive childhood um, and a poor relationship with his own parents. Yeah. So it, it gives us a little bit more insight into him and his his motives with his own daughter. Yeah, and, and ultimately everything that he's trying to do is give her the best time that he can, even though he's experiencing a lot of hardship at this point. So again, I want to tie this back into the end because I do feel like ultimately he succeeded. Like she left the vacation feeling happy. There are two last shots of this movie that really stand with me. Um, I guess they're not even the last shots, but they're, they're right at the end of the movie and they're just absolutely crushing. The first is he, Callum, is recording Sophie as she's boarding the airplane at the end. And he's recording her through that little camcorder that we've seen throughout the movie. And she's goofing around. She's jumping in between the 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 poles and things. And uh, right at the end of this shot, she steps out in full view. She smiles real big and she just waves. And then it just holds on that. And... The first time I watched it before I really understood what was happening, I I was like, this is an interesting choice. Like freeze frames are a pretty outdated trope. They're very 80s and often they look very goofy, but this felt more intentional than that. And when I thought about it, I realized this is literally, as she's boarding this plane, the last time that she physically saw her father ever. And that scene immediately cuts to adult Sophie watching this footage being played back. And everything that we as the film goer are experiencing, she's also experiencing as an adult just watching this footage back. And it holds on that last moment because ultimately that is the overarching theme of why she's doing any of this. This whole trip is the last time she saw her father, but that shot that it holds on is the last moment and she she can't look away from that because she's seeing herself seeing her father leave like it's so layered and like actually broke my heart the the second time i saw it and to see callum put down the camcorder after sophie walks away uh there's the scene of him in the completely like empty airport hallway. Yeah. So this was my second crushing scene. Oh, I'll stick on the first one. We can get back to that, but it is, it is tough to watch her, watch her childhood back. It's jarring, but at least she's left with these good memories. She, she can see the look on her childhood face and that she re- can recall smile. these. Yeah. She can recall these great memories, but it's a, it's a permanent goodbye, which like we never know if our go- goodbyes are going to be the last and it's fascinating that he did in that moment 
Yeah. Well, so here's something that I wanted to mention too. Uh, and I think that you might have touched on this a little bit earlier, Bryce, that we don't know explicitly what happens to Callum after this last scene. The general consensus is that he he likely killed himself. Most importantly is that he's probably dead. Yeah. Um, but there are, in my opinion, honestly, there are more implications that he may have just been killed in like an accident because he is increasingly reckless and unaware of his surroundings where, you know, he almost was hit by a bus. He makes a careless decision to stand on this ledge. He goes and swims in the ocean, not necessarily with ill intentions towards himself. How he dies doesn't really matter, but I think that if there's conversations about this movie, it it is going to end up becoming, well, what exactly happens to him after um, in my opinion, there's there's more implication that something just happened to him rather than him actively taking his own life. No, see, I, I feel like every time we see him almost die, it's not hinting that he's going to be in an accident off screen later. I think that's showing his recklessness as a character. Like, he doesn't care if he dies anymore. Yeah. Because ultimately, I mean, like, this whole movie, we see how torn apart by by trauma and by grief and by depression he is and the byproduct of that is reckless abandon with your own life putting yourself at risk and i think other than those instances of him coming close to dying that's the only implication that we see that an accident might happen to him i think there's a lot more evidence that he's incredibly depressed and so I, I feel like at least in my own interpretation there's there's no world where he doesn't take his own life yeah but you are absolutely right like at the end of the day what's important is sophie may not even know herself yeah um but she never sees him again like he dies and i think that leads us well into what was the more or yeah what was the more ambiguous recurring thing throughout this movie, which is sort of this dance hall crazy sequence that's interspersed throughout the story. Um, we see Callum and a bunch of essentially nameless, faceless people dancing and there's strobe lights and it starts off with just him dancing. And we see a little bit more of this story as the, as the movie progresses and, like Wyatt said, after he puts the camera down, when he says goodbye, he walks down the hallway and he opens the door in the airport and we see those flashing lights like he's walking into this area. And I'm curious how you guys interpreted that. I think he's walking into like out of physical permanence that at that point he goes behind that door and he becomes part of a dream sequence uh, that you see Sophie have. And so I think it's gone is her seeing him in physical form in person. He has walked into the space of her memories. Uh, he exists only within her brain and her dreams and her thoughts at that point. And so I think that trip down the, the very empty hallway that I think the hallway itself is a great metaphor for the feelings of depression. And I think he walks from that and then through the door uh, makes the transition from being a person who is there and active and 
interactive and with the another world. sentient being. Yeah. <laughs> and he is now at that point just a memory. Yeah, that's what I was going to say similarly too. It's very metaphysical. It's detached from reality the way that that scene is shot because he walks out of the airport directly into a club, which is not something that actually literally happens. Well, unless you're at the Pittsburgh International Airport. <laughs> yeah, it's always a, a dandy time at the Pittsburgh <laughs> International Airport. On the low, that's actually one of the better airports that I've ever been in. But there is still it's not always a, dead, but I don't hate it. It's not a dance club. It's 30 minutes outside of town, which I hate with my whole heart. It's an hour with traffic. It's, yeah. it's brutal. Um, but yeah, he's, he's walking into um, some form of eternity an afterlife or just the the idea of himself being in sophie's head for all eternity if the afterlife is walking into a turkish dance club and dancing forever to queen and david bowie it's a promising thought uh, that that's something that we all have as people to look forward to and maybe an interpretation of the afterlife that i will begin subscribing to that is why it's new religion yeah i think you're both I think I think I agree with both of your takes on what that that last time we see him represents. I was thinking a lot about what we're actually seeing in these dance sequences aside from just him dancing and now that I know it's not the conception story of Sophie <laughs> uh I'm able to to I think more accurately parcel out what that means and as the story moves on we see Sophie sort of like fighting her way through this crowd to her father who's just recklessly dancing and right at the end of the movie she reaches him and you'll have to correct me if if my memory is wrong here but I believe she reaches him and reaches out in an effort to physically contact him to touch him and I believe he falls and she screams like it's clear to me in this liminal space that they are in, she is never able to actually reach him. And that's why I feel like it, it, it ultimately is just the memory of him. She sees him as just this man that lives his life with fearless abandon. Like he's just dancing. He's having a good time. And she's trying to reach that in her head, but she never can because that's not how memories work. And so when he walks down the hall and into that void, it's ultimately him permanently leaving the physical space, like you said, Wyatt, and entering her memory, which is, like, so sad, <laughs> might it's, I add. It's devastating. It is such a good representation without saying, here's what happened, I'm laying it all out for you, to to leave us to, de to debate this and to describe what that scene was, I think watching it a second time was just as harrowing. Uh, you know it's coming for like the whole second half of the movie. Once you finally piece together, this is going to be it. Something is clearly happening with Callum. You're almost begging for the movie to keep going because you don't want this relationship to be broken. You don't want the the bond between the two of them to no longer exist. Because it, it's such a beautiful and tender relationship like we said at the top of yeah. the podcast and so you know it's coming and you can't do anything to stop it so you feel similar to sophie in that instance in which you want to reach out and stop him from walking into that space but there's nothing you can do you were a passive watcher uh as he uh is it's, it's assumed takes his own life 
Um, Much in the same way that she's essentially passively watching the memories on this camcorder. And it is something so tragic that I think is represented extremely beautifully. In my mind, what we are seeing is a representation of grief for somebody who is no longer there and you cannot have anymore. Um, specifically the, the feeble attempt to try to remember them because, you know, post-mortem somebody only exists in your mind within flashes. They're never tangibly constructed for you in the same way that they ever were. You can no longer reach them and feel them and, and speak to them in the same way that you ever were before. So, uh, that's what she we're experiencing, but we're seeing her grapple with this this new reality of of who she is, and she's you know she's reverting back to herself as a child, where she remembers him in a in a similar capacity, but that's all that she has left. And the further away you, you get from that loss, the more they just become sort of an idea, and you forget even how they might have looked. Like, yes, it's her father, but. It's clearly decades later and having lost people and having known people that have lost people, like the fear of even just forgetting what a loved person looked like is very real. And so it's absolutely believable that she would just, especially on her birthday, which we haven't mentioned yet, when it's a really pressing memory and a really relevant memory and a painful memory why she would turn back to that, even though it's likely painful for her. Like she loved her father very much. And these recordings are the only way that she can really access that memory because memory, especially so far out is just so fleeting and so, so loose. But I think that's like the point of it all. I mean, it's love cannot exist without grief. Uh, Those things are, if if one exists, the other is bound to follow yeah. or one way around. And so in watching those memories back, uh, the same way that any of us would recall time spent with loved ones uh, who have since passed away, um, you're going to have to hurt to experience the joys that come with it. There are ups with the downs. And so in in watching that those those tapes, I mean, certainly you're going to to drag up those feelings that are kind of buried down after a while of not seeing someone. The other option is just to, to completely abandon it and bury those feelings. And so I think that scene in which she's, she's watching this back on her birthday and it may seem like an odd day to decide to do that, but in digging up those feelings of grief uh, and the feelings of loss, uh, you're also bringing forth the love that you can recall uh, your father bringing forth and, placing upon you in his last instances in which you're together. On God. That's her yearly birthday gift from her dad is just the memory of him, which is beautiful and sad as fuck, which I think is my first use of that word on this podcast. Uh, But I think it is. Doug's going to come a calling. He does listen to this podcast. So sorry, dad. Um, Yeah. And do you guys have anything else specific you want to talk about here? We would be remiss if we did not mention the use of under pressure in this yes, dance Yes, I know scene. you wanted to talk about that. Um, as this whole final scene is going on and you know that this is the end and this is uh, the last little bit, uh, it's all set to the soundtrack of Under Pressure, the Queen and David Bowie song. Uh, and it's this building and swelling soundtrack that's added to 
Uh, also, it's it's done in conjunction with the score written for the film uh, to add even more emotion to it. Um, and so while you're watching uh, Callum and Sophie, both adult Sophie and uh, for Flashes and the Strobes, uh, childhood Sophie that we know throughout the movie, uh, dance together, it's set to uh, these just like yelled lyrics of this is our last dance and can't we give ourselves one more chance? God, I'm going to cry. <laughs> and so it is like, it's so literal. It is the last dance of the two of them. Callum has given love one more chance and this trip has not saved him from his plans of what's to follow. And I think it is, if I were to make a soundtrack of the best instances of music and movies would be on that list it is like produce goosebumps on your face type of level <laughs> of perfect use of music. I've listened to that song like seven times in today alone. Uh, it is so phenomenal. Certainly my favorite. I know we didn't see this in 2022, but certainly my favorite needle drop of 2022 in movies. Yeah, it is. It is something else. And I think that it is worth pointing out and it's probably at least for me, the most emotional point of the movie. I have a final thought, but it's unrelated to that, so I don't know. I do as well. No, please go ahead. So there's a lot of subtextual plot to this movie, but one theme that is a little bit understated but is still, in my eyes, uh, important to the story, like I said earlier, is generational trauma. Um, It's presented to us that um, Callum has had generational trauma, He's had a child young, and I think um, that that is connected to his trauma, and it also is a catalyst for him engaging in self-harmful mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, at the end of the movie, even though he's not there any longer, his bloodline continues, and so his impact on the world manifested in Sophie continues, but now she has a child of her own. We haven't mentioned that yet, but um, we don't see this baby, but uh, in the adult scenes of Sophie, we hear a baby crying, implying that she now has a kid of her own. Um, So what we're left with and what Sophie is left with is the reality of these scenarios that do happen in real life, which is now, what are we going to do? How are we going to continue on? Are we going to learn from the mistakes as as well as the good decisions that our parents made for us and with us? Or are we going to repeat the same mistakes that they made? So that's, that's yeah, the continuation of this point. story. Uh, my final point on a less serious note. Sophie was gay the whole time. I knew it. <laughs> there was no way that girl was wearing that hat and was that good at pool without marrying a woman in her future. That's all I need to say. Would you imply that being good at pool is a gay skill? Uh, yes. Interesting. I'm... In women or in all people? Uh, just in women, I suppose. <laughs> um, that's, of course, a generalization. But I, I was feeling... <laughs> Throughout the movie, Gay there's vibes. this there's this weird scene where she kisses a boy and she like does not really seem that into it. And I was like, does she really like? She's clearly okay with this, but like it doesn't really seem like she wants to do it. Like she's kind of just like we get all these shots throughout the movie of her watching happy couples and 
it's it's difficult to ascertain what she's actually feeling about that other than maybe like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so we see that with this other kid that's on the trip at the at the resort with her and she kisses him and she's like, Hey dad, I I did this and he's like, Okay. Was he your age? Then that's fine. Oh my um, god, I I really like that he asked that because yeah. he was very concerned to make sure, like, okay, she didn't make out with a yeah. like a nineteen year old, right? But that whole time, I was like, this. I know this isn't a love story between this eleven year old girl and someone else, but she feels far less into this than I think she should. And then she married a woman, so it all made yeah. sense. Yeah, well, I definitely, um, I was surprised by it. Maybe it's because I don't, you know, see gay people in a stereotypical light. Maybe it's someone like that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I might be the problem. <laughs> but she um, she really does. She, like, ogles a lot of heterosexual couples mm-hmm. all throughout the movie. Until the very end, we do see one gay couple that she sees um, and kind of oh, has, like, a... Oh, great point. She yeah, has a longing, I forgot about that. Uh, a longing, like, peeping Tom yeah. <laughs> moment with them. Um, but I, I think that that just goes to speak on the fact that sexuality also exists on a spectrum. Because yes. we don't even know that she yep, is only attracted to women. <laughs> um, my final bit on this. First off, Bryce is right. The fits in this movie at some points were literally ridiculous. <laughs> like, <there laughs> ridiculously was, ba- bad. There are some things that they were wearing where I was just like, man, this is quite preposterous to say the least. Yeah, I think I said to Wyatt while we were watching it, like she's really giving... 11 year old girl whose dad just lets her dress herself that's <laughs> you know what that's actually a pretty acute observation that there's something being told with that but yeah, yeah it's uh it's trash <laughs> um my last point is uh not about the movie but about the performance in it uh obviously paul is nominated for best actor um in this in this film uh do you think that his performance in watching it now you guys are like fully sold on that think it's it's a nominee that is deserving yeah i i definitely feel like it's deserving i i'll need to think more if it's my favorite of the year um it's certainly not the favorite to win academy wise but i i am absolutely okay with it getting a nomination um and if he were to win i would i would not be upset at all i, yeah. th- I think it's a masterful masterful performance and while the actress that plays sophie is doing a very good job there's so much more that Paul Mescal is asked to do in this movie emotionally and sort of subtextually that I, I haven't seen on a lot of levels before. And so I'm very impressed with this performance. I think some people are probably going to say that he doesn't do enough in the movie to warrant the nomination. We don't even but... see him cry. <laughs> um yeah, you don't see his face, but he is putting on a show with the ugly crying. <laughs> I would disagree with that because he executes this character perfectly in the subtlety of of his performance. Similar to what Wyatt said about his physical acting, his slight nods towards what his uh, emotions might be internally as he you know, tries to put on a brave face with his daughter. Um, it, it's a great performance. I, I don't think that it would be my favorite to win. I need to look at the list again, but, oh. Your favorite to win in terms of what you're predicting or Wyatt. just your personal favorite performance of the year? Wyatt is providing me a list right now. Um, neither. I probably, 
you know what? You know what? I'm going to stop you. Uh, don't spoil the Oscar predictions episode. Yeah, you're right. Fair enough. But uh, watch After Sun. This movie rocked. Yes, Paul Mescal is going to be around here for forever, so you might as well start loving him now. Uh, do it while it's still like hip and cool, so you can say that you were hip and cool in the future when he's in like the Irish Top Gun 15 years from now. God, what does that film look like? Peak cinema. <laughs> Pete cinema. <laughs> That's an Irish whiskey joke. <laughs> oh my God. I thought you were talking about like the hay, like the type of hay. No, and I was no. like, is that like a sheep? Well, well, it is adjacent. Joke? Irish whiskey is is made from peat. I actually cannot wait to cut this out of the podcast. <laughs> no, you have it'll to never, leave my Pete joke. <laughs> it'll never see the light uh, of day. I'm gonna kill you and fire you at the same time if you cut my Pete joke out. All right, we're gonna we're gonna end it here. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you've listened up to this point, all of our socials are in the description of this episode. We're at Lasso the Moon Pod on every platform, uh, and by every platform, I really just mean Instagram and Twitter. And we only really use Instagram, so please follow us on Instagram. Videos coming in the near future. Follow us on TikTok. We'll have a uh, a YouTube channel going as well once we get those videos up and working. Um, again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I also want to leave us with a Pete joke. Uh, what's with all this airplane food? This is in reference to Pete Buttigieg, U.S. Transportation Secretary. Now you have to leave this in the podcast, Brett, because Wyatt made a Pete joke, too. I'm pretty good at cutting up audio, so we'll see. Uh, well, for me, uh, I'd like to say I love you and have a good night. I love you. We would last of the moon for you. We hope you would do the same for us. We love you very much. Good night. Good night.